0: a time of quiet, a precision check, and recheck to ensure that Tranquility Base can provide life support to two men for at least 21 hours on an alien surface. Now it is time to explore Tranquility Base, to step on the moon. And even at this awesome moment, at this awesome place, there is totally human touch as Buzz Aldrin helps Neil out the door. Into another world. Okay, now you're clear. Line up on the platform. Move your left foot uh, to the right a little bit. Okay, that's good. All left. Yep. Okay now I'm gonna check uh here. Okay, you're not quite squared away. Pull to the, pull right a little. Are even? But, yeah, that's okay. That's good. You've got plenty of room to your left. It's a little close on the, uh, on the side. How am I doing? You're doing fine. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. Okay, I just checked, uh, getting back up to that first step. Uh, it's, the uh, that hasn't collapsed too far, but uh, it's adequate to get back up. Roger, we copy a pretty good little jump. I'm um, uh, at the foot of the ladder. The lamb footbeds are only uh, uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches, although the surface appears to be uh, very, very fine-grained get close to it. It's almost like a powder. Ground mass uh, is very fine. I'm going to step off the lamb now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. As the Surface is fine and powdery. I can I can pick it up loosely with my toe. It does adhere to, in fine layers, uh, like uh, powdered charcoal, to the uh, to the skull and, and sides of my boot. I only go in uh, a small fraction of an inch, maybe an eighth of an inch.
1: All right, Slaphead Radio, season one, episode thirteen.
2: Take two. Take two. There are gumballs on the floor and digital systems in the water. Here we are. Uh, we're just did this giant dialogue where we actually had a really good uh, banter explanation back and forth, or, or whatever you want to call it, about the difference between binary analog mainframe computer systems and digital ones anyway we're were having a very
1: (laughs) technological discussion about um computer systems and the history of mankind all because of
2: binary we're
1: listening to this uh apollo 11 um nasa recording that i have on vinyl here. uh the 51st anniversary of the moon landing was yesterday july 20th 1969 51 years ago they landed on the moon uh, this is on Capitol Records, um, Item num- catalog number slao six 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 zero. This is on, uh, once again, the Capitol label. It's a beautiful gatefold vinyl. Uh, I've had this for years. I don't even remember where I got it. It was one of those things where I thought, like, oh, man, that's cool. You know, you I saw like it in
2: a crate somewhere. When yeah, exactly. You know you did? You were in college in Santa Barbara, and someone was moving out of their dorm room or into a dorm room, and you went by the crate. And they happened to be inside at the moment, lifting their lampshades, and you saw it sitting in someone's crate, and you went, "Oh man, I gotta have that!" And you absconded with it. I bet you I that's, b- I b- that's. I bet you that's what happened. That's. I think that's, that's probably very what likely. That's very likely.
1: That's very likely. Yeah, I think that's probably very what likely. There. Yeah, fifty-one years ago, <laughs> the um, <laughs> the you know, we we were talking about the technology they had back then to put men on the moon. You know, we have 1969. more... 1969. Yeah, w- we have more technology in our cell phone that they had in that entire operation. Oh, well, that,
2: that's when the discrepancy came up about right. about uh, about digital systems, meaning uh, did we actually... Uh, did they actually have less technology than we have in our cell phones? Because, obviously, uh, government intelligence and all that uses... And then I said, I think there was email in the 70s for the CIA, and you said no, and then we got into this. Oh so we're not right. going to try yeah, to reiterate yeah, yeah. this now, <laughs> that we're talking about... Uh, Binary water duck systems that work on a humanly, uh, a, hu- a, a, a well, obviously designed, an intelligent design, a human design, but uh, that are actually operated by a human, yet they operate on a binary principle.
1: And you were talking about the movie.
2: frame <laughs> computers.
1: W- what, was yeah. the, what was the movie you were talking about?
2: Uh, the Imitation Game. The Alan Imitation Turing. Game. What year did that come cover. out? Uh, probably f- somewhere between five and Five years ago? Maybe seven? Oh, so seven recently. Some recently. Or maybe even, yeah, probably around five years ago, I think. Anyway, mainframe computers, digital punch cards, all that lovely stuff. But backtracking won't do us any good. So, so we recorded this brilliant conversation we had about the history of digital and binary technology. And to my great surprise, the two are not synonymous. There's actually binary technology that is not digital. There's analog binary technology, which, of course... Immediately from, from uh, thinking about that, you come up with ridiculous album names like binary water duct, uh, 19th century resistance, or something. Or a, so a song
1: named "The Legend of XOR and Noor and stuff like that. that, that you know, all d- the d- different logic
2: gates. Uh, the, the lo- yeah. So, uh, but but furthermore, I I, I I still can't explain why there's gumballs all over the floor here. And even um,
1: I put a sign on the door that says no gum. Oh, I came
2: in and it like smelled funky in here. And there's gumballs and the fu- it's like the episode of Captain Kangaroo or something, you know, like there's about to be ping pong balls falling from the ceiling. And oh man, I you're love you're when that. You remember happens. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your mustache makes you look kind of like a moose right now, so well, you know, I I know. I'm gonna start calling you moose from, from now on. Your name. Must <laughs> moose mooses have moose. mustaches. <laughs> do you remember the moose and the ping pong balls? I do. I do. Yeah, they're always up with d- that. Yeah. Captain I Kangaroo. There'd be a moose, would suddenly there's a moose, a puppet of a moose. And then suddenly ping pong balls would fall from the sky, from the ceiling. What was the deal with that? Like, was it when someone told a joke or something?
1: I have no idea. Man. I, when, Cap- when I was watching Captain Kangaroo, I, d- I had very limited knowledge of Same what was here, going But on. I
2: mean, now looking back, I remember as a teenager, I saw it again. And I was, like, really intrigued by the fact that that puppet, of that moose puppet, would t- t- talk and go, blah, blah, blah. And then ping pong balls would drop off from the ceiling. Really. they bounce all over the counter. That was the... Sort of the, you know, sort of the, the uh, he'd be behind a counter because he's a puppet, you know, he has to be behind something. Really weird, you know. Anyway, okay, so we can't recapture the magic of our, we erased, well, we didn't erase it. We just, we thought we were recording when we were talking about all this awesome stuff and didn't we record We fell it.
1: victim to the to digital technolo- yeah. digital booby traps that are um, ensconced in all of our lives today.
2: Ensconced. <laughs> it's, I think we are in, in I think, yeah, I think... Uh, Digital voodoo, is what's going on? But yeah. also, one of the digital mojo.
1: One of the things that uh, I wanted to play—that uh, Apollo 11 moon landing also is because the uh, the comet Neowise is uh, flying flying above the Earth right now, and I've been checking it out like, not every night, but probably every other night for the past like week and. Uh,
2: I haven't seen it. I haven't seen anything.
1: Well, you can't see it in San Francisco. Well, it's that's too for gal- sure. Cloudy, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's too cloudy and too many lights. I had to drive yeah. all the way to Mount Diablo, man.
2: Yeah, well, those you know, the the clouds. They're just trying to you know try to hide the stars from us it's a conspiracy all that all the uh, the fog in san francisco can't the see oldest th- conspiracy there is goes back to Mark Twain talking about how cold it was can't the see summer. the stars
1: yeah. through the fog man
2: exactly they don't want us to to know what's going on in, the, in how the can numbers. you
1: reach for the stars you can't even brother, see
2: exactly them. there is a bubble it's like this city is like one of those Christmas, uh, shaky things with the snow. You know, there's a, a p- snow globe. <laughs> cl- <laughs> no, no. See, that's the reason there is a fog ever. So you can't see the actual real bubble that is over the city, keeping all the weirdos in, and everything. You know, and keeping us from, you know, from really. Yeah, exactly. All the weirdos are staying in. I mean, when's the last time you left the city? And, uh, exactly. Yeah, no. I don't think I did ever. Yeah. All right. So, um,
1: what do we
3: got to listen <laughs> to today, Mike?
2: <laughs> well, I was thinking we would run tonight like the Dick Cavett show.
1: Um. you mean like Jimi hendrix and john lennon no well
2: no (laughs) i was thinking more like um talking more soothing voices about things and make more subtle jokes like well maybe george harrison you ever seen the one when george harrison was on there
1: i've seen it but i mean years and years i
2: watched it i think i've watched it like four times and it's totally boring and he and he says that too he comes on there and says I'm probably the most boring person you've ever had on here. I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously, if you're a Beatle, you can afford to...
1: You can afford to be boring. You
2: can afford to, to not care about anything, you know. You can just sit there and be <laughs> George. Yeah, because it's, it's just... Yeah. Yeah, or because you're so damn loaded, and there's nothing you can do to not succeed, right? So so he goes on the Dick Cavett show and just says, this is the most boring um, thing. You know, I'm bored, and you're probably bored having me on here. I have nothing to say at all. I don't know why I'm here. And, and then, it, But as a result... Like, as opposed to, he had John Lennon on. who's uh, John, I mean, John Lennon is interesting to listen to talk. You know, he is. Paul doesn't really have much to say. He's, like, pretty boring. But, but when he talks, at least, you know. But uh, but George uh, has nothing to say at all. But it's just fascinating listening to his tone of voice, listening to him talk, saying nothing at all. And it's he just continues to say. super soothing. He, no, he kind of yeah. is soothing. And yeah, him and yeah. Dick Cavett are both soothing. They sort of, it's the first time I ever saw, I've seen a lot of the Dick Cavett show, and they sort of play off, it's, like, weird. Because when he has Jimi Hendrix on, or he has... Uh, um, who else do you have on there? Who was re- Robert uh, Robert Mitchum or or, or who, who? Yeah, else? sounds about right. A bunch of weird people. Janis Joplin. Is, uh, besides the rock and roll people, he has all these. Richard Burton was on there. All these people who contrast with him. I
1: saw a Dick Cabot show where he had a young Rodney Dangerfield.
2: Oh, so you know, I've never awesome. seen that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: Rodney Dangerfield was Woody super funny, funny, man.
2: Yeah, I've what had. But all these people who sort of Dick Cabot plays off them as sort of the straight man a lot of the time in this net. But when George Harrison goes on there, it's like almost the same tone the same person and it gets very very weird and i've watched it like i i see it on youtube oh there's that interview again with george harrison and i put it on and dick cabot and it's totally boring i go why am i watching this but i can't i get transfixed and i have to watch the whole thing <laughs> i just have to <laughs> i did it last night and this thing i know i'm up all night watching this. i'm why am i watching this for the third or fourth time i don't know anyway um covid thing you know you d- you sit and watch dick yeah, Cavett, yeah
1: watch stuff but over and over but
2: uh, um, why, why did I mention that okay so
1: we're,
2: I, I guess there's no danger Th- it's too late for this to be like the Dick Cavett show unless you play Dick Cavett but um, oh the best thing on there was when uh, I, I've ever seen is when Orson Wells goes on and he does the thing that I've never seen anybody do before although I've tried to do it in interviews like you're doing an interview and then you try to reverse the interview
3: oh yeah like yeah, you yeah, start
2: yeah. interviewing the person who's interviewing Yeah, you, you. like doing that yeah, 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 right? <laughs> I've done it a couple times. And <laughs> usually it's some, like, uh, European person, so they don't, like, their English might not be as, or, or they might be German, and or whatever, they they, have a, they might have a very dry, or a seemingly dry sense of humor, right? Because you can't always tell when Germans and, and Norwegians particularly are being sarcastic, because everything they say sounds kind of sarcastic and flat and deadpan often, you know? Well, because
1: they're trying to speak English, when not their native language. Well, no,
2: that's okay. That's, well, no. no, no. It's like when I speak, speak Spanish. They usually speak English better than we do, though. I,
1: I don't have very inflection in many inflections in my yeah. voice when I speak Spanish because I'm I'm focusing so much on translating the words in my head.
2: Okay, well, they, that that's true, probably to some extent. Although their English is totally excellent for both of those countries, most people have incredible English. Uh, those true. who do speak English. So I don't know. Maybe you're right, but whatever the case is, you can't tell when they're being cynical. So, uh, or when they're being sarcastic. So I try to. Um, Reverse the interview, you know, and say, well, how long have you been? You know, like someone will call me up and go, oh, hey, so this is the interview for Rockhart or whatever. And I'll be like, oh, great. Yeah, what's your name? Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, Dieter, you know, or uh, they're all named Jürgen usually. But what do you, what do you, what do you, uh, how long have you worked there? Yeah, I don't think you were here last time that I did an interview with Rockhart. How do you like it? <laughs> yeah, really? Okay, well. Were you how actually you, in a how band? How'd you get into journalism? I say, I'm n- yeah, no, <laughs> not n- exactly, yeah. And they're like, journalism. This is a metal thing. I'm in a band. You know, they, they say they're not in a band. I say, can I have your autograph? you you're the only guy I've ever met who's not in a band. You know, but yeah, eventually they're like, and and the one guy just, di- I think he really genuinely didn't get what I was doing. Like, didn't know I was. J- he said, well, I, I'm I'm supposed to be interviewing you. You know, so li- let's let's do that. You know, and I said, oh, I not uh, All I saw was rock hard interview. I got call, this call about it. I thought it meant I'm supposed to interview the guy from the magazine, you know, and he, he didn't. Maybe he just thought it was so stupid that he was <laughs> like, I'm not going to entertain <laughs> your stupid joke. Anyway, Orison Wells does this on the Dick Cavett show successfully. He turns oh, the interview around. He's a big personality. Oh, he's pretty bad it. He, he goes, Really? Well, do you like doing this? Well, how long have you done it? And Dick Cavett, you know, plays <laughs> along with it, of course. And then next thing you know, he's got the audience involved. And he goes, Well, we have to take a commercial break now. And he says, Well, he's like, Well, uh, what do you think, audience? Should we continue this way with me interviewing uh, Dick? And they, and yeah, and then for the rest of the show, he interviews Dick Cavett. I mean, you know. Dick Cavett was an interesting guy. He was. He, he had shock treatment. You know that? No. No, see, Dick Cavett, see, Dick Cavett, that's why I wanted to talk about Dick Cavett. See, he, Dick Cavett is a national treasure. Everyone knows it. Uh, there was no other talk show host ever like him, and I'm getting kickbacks from him right now, but, but, well, I, but, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, he was incredibly depressed. Uh, which surprises a lot of people, right? Because he doesn't, I mean, he seems very, very intelligent and sensitive, but no one would think of him as a depressive type. Uh, but he's
1: even keeled.
2: He's even keeled, yeah, yeah. But there's all sorts of different brands of depression, you know, and, and, and anxiety and all that stuff. So he was a very dark, dark, in his own mind, he had a very dark, uh, um, uh, I don't know, experience. So so he got uh, sometime. After I guess during the course of the Dick Cavett show, which went on for many, many years, actually, uh, he received shock treatment. And he was a huge um, advocate for it. He He's still, still is. He's still alive? Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, he talks about it. He's like, shock treatment is not nearly as volatile as people think, and it, they've got it down to a very precise science now, and it is incredibly helpful. It's like and I, have, I know people who have had shock treatment who say the same thing, that it's not like they stick you in an electric chair. And go like, ah, you know, like, like it's not like ride the lightning or whatever. You know, it's not, it's, it's a, uh, they put electrodes on your head and I guess they just send a, um, it breaks up your Current. synapses because the depression is often a case where uh, depression is often uh, the result of or, or the cause of whatever you want however you want to talk about brain chemistry uh, as it relates to consciousness is, is uh, c- depression is often characterized by. Uh, these sort of pathways that your synapses go down, and you can't get out of those pathways. Meaning the neurons line up in a certain. I mean, the depress-
1: gates don't open up when they're. Oh supposed yeah, yeah, to open yeah,
2: up. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well or a dip- exactly. oh, it's a digital system. Yeah. Some people <laughs> think the brain is binary and digital. It might be. It's hard to say. It's very yeah, really yeah. hard to chemical. Put it d- and so, well, brain's certainly chemical. But the way that the axions and the dendrites line up—if you remember your biology—you know, an axion is on sort of the front, if you if you will of the, uh, the neuron, and it h- hooks onto a dendrite in the back, right? And I've taken drugs before that, that help, you know, serotonin. I- I've taken serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are the <laughs> drugs. <laughs> well, well, I bet you half <laughs> the people listening are on them, you know, like Prozac like <coughs> or whatever. You know. I
1: don't know. Hey, let us, let us know if you're Paxil on any and sort of, Zoloft, of inhibitors. You
2: know, uh, they, they, they help the axon connect to the dendrite in a way that's more uh, solid, right? So you have these, you know, when, when they start to break up, you may get anxious or depressed. Well, another thing that makes you depressed is those those things line up. Your axions and dendrites, even your neurons, line up in a in a in a pattern, in a rut sort of. Like they can't get out of this sort of rut. You know what I mean? Like you want to bring your thoughts. Yeah, you know, the ducts open up and go yeah. into different pathways, yeah. but you can't stay out of that pattern. The minute you get depressed, suddenly it's, it seems like a deterministic system, where you just do 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 uh. do 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 breaks them it breaks the neurons the individual neurons back up to be able to create different pathways huh. so when you're really depressed and you're really down you really feel like you're paralyzed in a sense it's because those those well worn pathways of neurons you know of synapse chains can't get out of that rut they're just in the same thought pattern and that's a really depressing pattern often for these people yeah, obviously. so you go bing and it just shoots them around and forces them to make new pathways and to connect to different dendrites or whatever and it usually makes people feel better. See, it forces them. It shocks them into it, so they blow up. You know. But so geez, do you do, do, do the
1: research on these? Do you do the research on these drugs before or after you take them?
2: Well, I did when I was taking uh, paroxetine. Uh, I I um talked to the uh, in depth to the psychiatrist about it because I was super interested. Not because I was worried about it or. Anything. But you wanted I, to know. Right? I was intrigued by yeah. what the hell is this doing? Because yeah, it, well, what are you giving uh, me? To be honest with you, I'll tell you because it was making me. I hope we're recording this. It, yeah. It was, he said. Do you notice any side effects of this? And were they listed we on the packaging? We won't get into the sexual bizarre um, things that uh, happened. we did
1: that in episode ten.
2: I don't think we did. No, <laughs> but, but, but they weren't. I didn't have sexual side effects that were what you'd think. There they they were strange other uh, um, adventures so but coming up in episode fourteen. Yeah, yeah, sexual yeah, side yeah, effects it, it by can my scalpel. Very scouting. strange things. People talk about erectile dysfunction and things like that. Well, there's different different permutations in different areas. That can become erect in your body. They're not the ones you're thinking of as a result of these drugs. It's very strange. <laughs> you wouldn't think you could have like like toe erections. You know what I mean? Oh. Anyway, if you're really into fetishes, you know this. It's a cramp, right? Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, though. But there were there, were, there were bizarre things that can happen. Not like that, but other sexual <laughs> things that you wouldn't imagine. Um, but uh, <laughs> but no, I didn't have that. What I said is the only s- the only effect. I said actually, I'm still really depressed. I don't know what your it you didn't seem to be working, um, very well. But uh, as far as that goes, but it stopped me from, like, having these freak-out panic things, right? These sort of, not really panic attacks, but these these peak experiences of anxiety that were, maybe they were, pan- I don't know what to call them. But, but I was like, th- it's stopping me from having that, but I'm still really depressed. But it's making me more regular, like, really big time. Well, that's Same good. Same time every day. And he goes, oh, yeah. Sometimes uh, these things work as a, uh, as a um, mild, like, uh, laxative or, you know. Diuretic. Uh, yeah, yeah, but but why? Was it because it lines it because you're, now this is an issue, because your intestinal tract, your bowels, all that stuff. The the uh, which is another problem I have is is, uh, is um. It's all controlled I- IBS, by your brain, right? Yeah. Is that synapses? Is that your your brain stem and your spine and all that have more neurological connections to your guts? Uh, meaning the nervous system is more uh, hooked up to your guts than any other organs. Makes right? sense. Yeah, there's a lot going heart, on in there. You know. And so, and so, there's a lot of going on with the, the the relationship between the synapse firing. If it's jerky, the way your synapses fire, if it's like like that, you'll get in a metal band probably. But you'll you'll be but you'll be <laughs> you'll be someone who uh, who has erratic behavior, and your bowels will uh, be erratic. Like one day, like you'll have the runs. The next day, you'll like you know, shoot a brick. You know, but solid with, as with a rock. With the peroxetine and the reuptake inhibitors, with the yeah, you got solid as <laughs> a You've got these like super steady. Uh, uh, brain uh, uh, synapses going on, right? And then your bowels become, the motility of those fine muscles around your colon will work in a more smooth way and you'll be regular. It's, it's, it's this fascinating. Is, this is all fascinating stuff. So, serotonin stu- reuptake inhibitors are a fascinating subject but I, I really, uh, maybe we'll on Shock the website, explain these more. Shock yeah, treatment. Yeah, Dick Cavett. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to play speaking of brains we're going to play brains, right? Okay. This is an Irish band, okay? Isn't that a. Yeah, uh, um, this is an Irish band I that we've we hung out with, uh, uh, and they're, I believe they're from Cork, but we hung out with them in Dublin, I think. Or was it in Cork? Did we play with them in Cork? I don't remember when we took that big bus trip with trip with uh, Martin and those guys, and they were all eating hash balls and singing uh, uh, Tina Turner songs. Do you remember that? Driving us crazy, we couldn't goddamn sleep all night on that bus. But
1: I had my my camera. That's when they got They they hired us
2: a bus with a driver and piled all the kids from Dublin, and there we go down to Cork. I believe that's when we met these guys in 2010.
1: Sounds about right. Was that
2: song there about the witch? That's the one I want to play. The awful witch. The awful witch. Play the awful witch. Yeah.
4: Feel a little bit of sweat running down my cheek Feels like a beat of sweat came from the coldest part of me Woken in the dead of night from my troubled sleep Woken by the rain falling down outside in sheets But the rain just stopped, did the floor just creak? My eyes glued shut so I cannot see what is happening Right in front of me Who's that talking outside my bedroom door? And who could that be walking around the attic floor? Someone leaning over me, breathing down my neck Climbing up on top of me, feeling pushing on my chest Then my eyes ring wide, so I can see That awful witch that is straddling me, oh baby Won't you wake up from your sleep? Wake up! Said she's patient And she's waiting around
2: in the true circle of doom right because we played that stuff you know for that sure right? that now we're definitely uh, doom affiliated or we're we're legitimized or what is the word for it we're we're uh, vindicated validated by doom or something vindicated and da- da- validated <laughs> and for dabbling in the in the occult or da- dab delving into the occult in fact i think we're doing are we dabbling or delving you want to have that conversation uh,
1: delving right? i think we're delving
2: because I think you're kind of a dabbler. Sorry. but I dabble the, you know, in just
1: about everything, yeah.
2: I mean, You are the John Oates of this podcast. And now so that and I got my mustache. Now that you have your mustache, you're definitely the John <laughs> Oates of the John Oates. There's a guy we should have on this thing. We should have a guest appearance from John Oates. What?
1: I would love to. Do that. would play that tennis would make us with a friend of mine. That would yeah. make us bona fide.
2: Bonafide? Bonafide. would give me a boner for sure. But John Oates is, uh, I've always wondered about that guy. So like that was, um, is he Puerto Rican or what? I mean, he's kind of got to be, right? I don't know. It's so we just listened to
1: uh, yeah. Solstice that was from the album Death's Crown yeah, that was solstice, but
2: but th- that, that is our we want okay we got to put out a question like this before we talk about solstice more uh, what okay because you know you on the radio shows and and talk shows they say we'd like you to write in and and particularly on radio shows they used to do this I think uh, we'd like you to write in and answer this question we don't really know the answer or we're doing a contest or something is John Oates really Puerto Rican okay because I mean look at the guy. Look at well the way he moves. Look at the way he acts. You know, does he look like he should be in Hall and Oates? Does he look his name should, should look like his name should be Oates?
1: Yeah, I, I he doesn't really look like an Oates.
2: He also doesn't look like a uh, like a like a Hall and Oates soul guy like he should be or something or whatever. That w- I'm not really phrasing uh, saying this correctly, but uh, yeah, he's 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 got a total uh, he's got sort of this cholo vibe to him. You know what I mean? I
1: think he's got like a porn actor vibe.
2: Well, I know everybody used to say that. I mean, maybe he did. Well, because he had a mustache. I mean, what? Just 'cause
1: he's got—he's got, he's got that vibe, man. He's sexy. Well,
2: yeah, well more than Daryl Hall. Daryl Hall is just like a big. A big glass of water or something. He's aged
1: pretty well though. Daryl Hall looks pretty good now. Well, John Oates probably
2: looks good too. He shaved his mustache. um, He's not nearly as porn actor looking.
1: I watched one of them Daryl Hall like live from his house. Live from at home things. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. I saw one
2: was that was absolutely terrible actually. But uh, maybe there's good ones and bad ones. Joe uh, Walsh was on there
1: once. I'm not. I wasn't really critiquing the the music. It was more like the show itself his house
2: and the interior decorating yeah, yeah which john oates uh, probably did because he's and
1: all of you know. the all, all of the stuff that the, all the instrumentation that he had and the, the really? way they were putting it all together and and it's the sound quality for a television show well I thought okay was pretty good. maybe
2: the sound quality was good i don't think well the one i saw was pretty hideous because he had ray manzarek on there who's hideous to behold anyway right <laughs> no he did I, and and uh, or was it Robbie Krieger? It was one of the doors. Probably I Robbie think. Krieger, because Ray Zurich died, right? Well, no, this is this is way back before that, you know. Uh, and it was Daryl Hall and these guys sitting around. Wh- either it was Ray Manzarek or Robbie Krieger or both. I don't remember. And he was playing some guitar while sitting on a stool, just like I am here, and singing "Break On Through to the Other Side." Now, and with the, with this band, now, do you want to hear Daryl Hall sing "Break On Through to the Other Side"? No, like, I know. Is he very psychedelic? Does that make any sense at all? Does he have moody artistic? vibe to him to sing break on through to the other side you know I, it was really strange and awkward anyway speaking of awkward um that was solstice and uh, <laughs> oh no um no yeah you know th- this is from their uh death's crown is called, victory yeah but what that song was called i am the hunter I am which the is hunter. the one I, I picked out of this. Um, this came
1: out on White Horse Records. Yeah. WH-001. This, this is the,
2: the penultimate, the second-to-last record that they made. Not that they're finished, Solstice, that is. But uh, this was, uh, as usual, it has interesting lyrics by it says Richard here M. Walker. It, uh, it says here
1: that Rich Walker is endorsed by Grumpy John Cider.
2: I think that's probably <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sits rapturous, poisonous in pious light. Yeah, yeah, He's such yeah. a scholar. He used the word pious. Uh, beset them with tooth and razor claw. He's a damn good lyricist. Uh, you, you can't take that away from the guy. My name is revenge. Okay. But no, this is great. Uh, Solstice, a band we have a hell of a history with. We've been on tour with it's them. Long time. We've done all sorts of stuff with them. Been stuck in very gnarly places uh, in wearing leather in the back of a van in the sweltering uh, sun of Germany in this, this time of year. Uh, just simply in a giant, uh, disgusting pile of sweaty monstrosities with Chaz, uh, Lee Chaz Netherwood, their a, a former bass player, and, uh, really bizarre, but sometimes great experiences uh, with this band. So yeah, that was uh, "I Am the Hunter" from Solstice, and you know to follow up on what we just uh, what we just talked about. Um, uh, no, I can't remember. We had something to say about something. You know, about the COVID crisis. Uh, things are getting really weird around here, I've noticed. Uh, I don't really want to talk anymore about my experiences in convenience stores and, and uh, uh, grocery stores and stuff like that. Um, but I will say that I went to Ross today for the first time. Uh, I love clothes Ross. Clothes shopping for yeah. the first time. And I think part of what we want to do here is talk about our daily lives. Uh, I know that you um, have been... Uh, um, sheltering in place more than some people I know. Every but day. I mean, but yeah, but are you really getting out now? Or are you staying at home? No,
1: I'm staying at home just as much as I've been. I mean, really? I like b- I went out last night by myself to go uh, watch the comet by myself. Okay. And right. uh, that was the first time I had left in like a while. I mean, I mean, I basically go to come here to the studio and stay home and go to the go to the Casa Lucas grocery store.
2: How often do you go there,
1: though? Yeah, maybe once a week.
2: Damn. Yeah, I was doing that before. going, But I, I I discovered that, unless, of course, I'm asymptomatic or something, that the grocery stores aren't as dangerous as they once thought they were, I don't think.
3: Well, the one I say. go to
1: has... It's Surfaces like it's open and all air that aren't as it's bad. It's an open-air yeah, oh yeah, grocery store. Yeah. So, uh, well, not totally open, but the walls are... They, roll, they have those big metal gates that roll up Ye- and down.
2: Yeah. Oh, wait, so is that on 24th? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you mean the one with the giant... Um, produce section
1: yeah, it is one of those yeah there are yeah. several They're which side there. of the
2: street is it on this side or the uh, other? this side yeah no i, I used to go there all the like time
1: alabama and oh yeah no exactly yeah. where that
2: is i go there i, I still go there sometimes yeah, i used to go there great all red it is a very good uh, it is a very good everything i store, yeah.
1: seriously i haven't oh, gone don't you hate how the
2: the lines work there i don't mean because of COVID. i mean there's like the lines make no sense. There's like four cashiers and there's like three lines. And oh it's yeah, all yeah.
1: It's 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 total utter chaos. Yeah, that it drives is chaos. me
2: insane. That's the only thing about that store I hate. But I hate that about that store.
1: Well, because there's some people that stand in line, and then there's some people that will just kind of in endeavors. and go. Yeah. yeah,
2: I know. And you can't. Nobody can keep tra- those the the cashiers can't keep track. Well of Well, I, I do that
1: now because I'm sick of watching. Other well, people, people do I've seen it.
2: people getting like big arguments there about it because they're like, oh, 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 nothing makes any sense, or oh, you butted in line, or this, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, story. I don't know, man. I went to Ross today because i I finally had to break down and shit, I should have brought my other pair of shoes. I was just wearing shoes that were that's the one thing i you know the, I mean I can deal with you know uh only having two pairs of pants or something for this whole. So i I have more than that, but I mean but you know but shoes I mean if your shoes are trashed,
3: yeah, you got have, have like
2: shoes. one pair that that you know what are you gonna do and especially I don't at our age
1: on. your f- your feet require support,
2: yes. You know, I don't want to yeah. have to go to a podiatrist and get my arches uh, replaced or something. So
1: I have to go to a podiatrist once a year.
2: Well, you have good medical insurance. So I, d- I do have good medical <laughs> insurance, I, yes. I, when I went to a podiatrist when I was a kid, they told they said, You're flat foot, buddy. Flat footed. Uh, I did go to a podiatrist because someone suggested it. And my dad had really good insurance because he was a Penn State professor. So you right. get great insurance, right? So lucky him and lucky me. So I went. And uh, they said, Your feet are flat. And I said, So... Uh, so what? I mean, said, so you're lucky kid. You, you won't get drafted or something like that. You know, right, yeah, yeah. Although I doubt that would have been an issue at, at, uh, at this stage. And, uh, you know, they had better shoes in the Army to <laughs> – we're hitting a variety of subjects today. Anyway, so I went to Ross <laughs> because I needed to get shoes, and there was no way out of it. I mean, my shoes were falling off my feet. It was at the point where I was going to, you know, step on, like, uh, you know, needles or something. Were and they, co-
1: they fixed with uh, duct tape? No. Oh, okay. No, well, then, no. then they weren't that's that
2: probably bad. why the guy in Safeway gave me such a hard time. He looked at my shoes and <laughs> thought I was a bum. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like the Dean Martin song. Yeah. But uh, anyway, um, so I'm like, I better if I'm going to go back to the grocery store, and not get accosted by these cops who are in there. You know, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, because there's cops doing the doing the security now, and that you know, and uh, I thought we were trying to make the cops do less stuff. Now they're doing more. I don't know. But um, so I went into Ross, and there's a as a security guard there. I don't think he's a cop. Uh, with these shoes falling off my feet, right? And I'm like, i got to get shoes. And that's where I've traditionally bought shoes because you can find really cheap. Well, see these yeah, Converse? Yeah, yeah, decent shoes. Those are, they're pretty, pretty, those are pretty slick two-tone Converse uh, sneakers hey. there, I, th- I think. Uh, bargain at any price. Well, I tell you what a bargain about. This is the thing that weirded me out, right? You think that, well, are you going to try in the, in the COVID crisis, you know, trying shoes around, shoes on that other people have tried on?
3: Oh yeah. Because that's what you're doing
2: at a place like Ross, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But that's that's pretty innocuous, well, right? You I mean, wash r- your hands, you know. I mean, what's going to happen? You can't get it through your feet, I don't think, you know. I don't. I mean, I don't think so. No, I really just doubt. don't.
1: Just don't rub your feet on your rub face. Rub the feet on your
2: face. Yeah, rub it. Well, that's another thing I don't get. Like they're saying you can't get it by food. You can't get COVID nineteen through eating food. Hmm. Well, then you. If the guy making your food is, is coughing COVID, I heard this on NPR, is coughing COVID-19 on your food. There's still a very small chance you're gonna get it from the food. Hmm. Because once the stomach acids are I don't know what. But you put it in your mouth. They tell you not to touch your face. But but apparently, according to that logic, you could stick your hand wherever in a bunch of COVID-19 and then put it in your mouth, as long as you don't breathe in your hand or something. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Does that make any sense?
3: Yeah. Well, uh, I, mean, yeah. I don't
2: understand what they're saying. You say, like, Don't touch your face, don't touch your mouth, don't do this. But you can go ahead and put a slice of pizza in your mouth that some sick guy coughed all over. That's fine. What the fuck? Like, you know, it doesn't make any sense. So here I am licking all the shoes in Ross because I figure, well, this is the only way to, to, to really to test try them to make them sure they're because good. you can't get it in your mouth, obviously. Yeah. And uh, I find this two tone pair of these beautiful Converse sneakers. Stylish. But there were several pairs of them, right? But there was one that didn't have shoelaces. So this pair did not have shoelaces, and they cost $10 less, meaning, okay, they charge 30 bucks for Converse there, which is the most I'm going to pay that's for. That's a pick- great price. Well, that's the most I'm going to pay for Converse sneakers. Because when I was a kid, well, we got them for like 12 You 15 you I have no, you know no I mean? idea. In the yeah. 80s, they cost nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. Because they're cheap pieces of crap. I mean, the truth is... I bought them for a long time. My dad was a shoemaker, uh, and so was my grandfather. And my dad, to my great um, uh, astonishment, actually said in the last... 15 years or so that converse are actually really well made shoes even the ones that are made in these are pr- they're probably not made in like indonesia now or something or china or whatever you right? know Or taiwan but he actually's like he's like converse are really solid actually they're not that bad it's just thin canvas you can't wear them in the cold you know uh, and he's every pair of shoes that he ever sees he critiques and talks about how every pair of shoes i really? ever wore work yeah well, he's a, he was a, he grew up making he was, shoes he was and a and cobbler and re- repairing shoes yeah and so yeah, his dad. His dad's store went out of business. That's cool, man. How come you times. didn't
1: get any of that?
2: Well, I he What's had he was you, always man? repairing shoes in the basement. I never took to it. I was never my. I never aspired to be a, I know. I should have learned how to dude, do. Dude, that would
1: have been awesome if you like made your own shoes. I know. Oh, well, dude. the, the st-
2: equipment still. I think in my sister's basement, she still has some of the the equipment still there. Because when I was a kid, the whole basement, the, the part of the basement was a, was a cobbler's thing. You know. A cobbler's table, That's and he, had rad, on, he would put, put cleats on my shoes. And he was always my dad would always complain about how the shoes aren't made the way they used to be. Even his dad, I was he went out of business a couple times because he wouldn't stock. They, he started having to sell shoes to keep business alive. He was a, he, first he instead just
1: of just repairing shoes. Yeah,
2: and then he wouldn't. He, and This is in the late forties. He wouldn't stock penny loafers. <laughs> those things, because all the all the all the Hepcats wore penny loafers. Right, right, right. And he was like, those things are insubstantial. They're gonna, ah, you gotta wear a solid pair of shoes, solid pair of boots, or whatever. And he wouldn't sell them, and my, my, my dad tried to get him to sell penny loafers to all the teeny bopper kids, and he wouldn't do it, so he went out of business. Anyway. Oh, man, that's funny. He was a hard-ass. He was, he was a purist. Can you imagine that? Uh, anyway, um, so I go in there, being the shoe skeptic that I am, being raised by my dad, and these don't have any shoelaces in them. So they're not $30. bucks. they are 20 bucks for a pair of Converse without the shoelaces. Now this is starting to sound like a Seinfeld uh, they're twenty dollars, but, but they're, yeah, they're only twenty bucks, right? So I figured that's oh, a pretty we're good I'll deal. I get my, for a I'll pair get my of shoes.
1: base and do that and bounce no, right? yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, yeah,
1: I knew how to play that back in the day. You did, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah I did it make all make the some time. Money that way, yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, But um, so I don't know what, where this story's going other than the fact that they were they were cheap, and then I ended up putting uh, the shoelaces from my beat up old ones. I mean, how much do a pair of shoelaces cost? You know, like three, three four bucks. bucks. That was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I got out of there, and then uh, it's a simple luxury. Shoelaces? New
1: shoelaces. Bring oh, they're know, nice, yeah, but you, you know, can't if find know, like you have a pair of shoes, kind of kind of gnarly. Well, you know, put awesome. it, put you them you in the washer. shoelaces?
3: We
2: don't have shoelaces. You know, I put shoelaces.
1: them in the washer on hot water with, like, a lot of soap, you know, yeah. wash them real good, and then put a brand-new pair of shoelaces. Yeah. It's like 75 Strangle your girlfriend with them, it, too. Yeah, 75% of yeah. a new pair of shoes.
2: 75%? Yeah. I don't know about that.
1: If they're clean anyway, and new, but laces? but no, I was
2: a little bit weird. They, but they 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 count how many people go into the store. Oh, I've been in stores. It's not like I haven't gone in the store, but I didn't go close. I was always like clothes shopping. Uh, people been touching everything. Uh, yeah, it's nothing. But they can't. They have a ticker tape thing. It's hmm. like not ticker tape. It's not the right word. Turnstile. You know? uh, not a turnstile. Uh, uh, whatever it is. Click it, on. They say we can have 113 people in here. Whoa, that's a lot. of I people. know, but it's a huge three story Ross downtown. Oh. So it anyway, I mean, I, were, I was I was. I wanted to get out of there standing in the line. I was kind of weirded out by the guy behind me. But, you know, anyway, um, that All was right. about it. All yeah, right, so. Let's play uh, something else. And so yeah, we're <laughs> going gonna to
1: play some music now. This is uh, Slough Fake Radio, season one, episode 13, coming to you from San Francisco, California. Uh, we're celebrating today the 51st anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing on the moon. And uh, since that was such a colossal endeavor, we're going to play uh, played a band a uh, couple weeks ago on one of the previous episodes called Colossus and uh, after um, I had their demo from like 2008 or whatever and come to find out they've uh, changed their name to Mega Colossus and they've put out like five albums since then. Yeah, so this is... Well, because there was a couple of other bands
2: called Colossus. Isn't Mega Colossus, sort of a redundancy or a it is a vacuous tautology or something.
1: Yeah, because yeah. they um, there's some other bands. There's like a Christian ba- Christian rock band that's also called Colossus. Well, I understand
2: changing the name, but what is what is Colo- Doesn't Colossus mean like uh, like big oh no wait what is colo- col- colossal colossal it means big yeah, i mean col- can or it doesn't mean big. colossus is a greek god too who is huge right yeah, yeah yeah so mega colossus what is that supposed to mean like colossal it's colossi- even more they should have called it colossal colossus
1: god uh, you know now now, like now that i got the guy's email i can yeah. email him, tell him be like dude next album should be called like colossal Galactic
2: colossus. galactus or something so go- this
1: yeah. is um this is a track off of their 2009 album called drunk on blood is the name of the album this is uh, Colossus this is a song called the mountain that rides yeah.
5: the power! <laughs> you got the knife. No way! Get ready for battle! Give me your money! Beat the
3: black knight! <laughs> <laughs>
1: MIDI, like M-I-D-I, metal. That's um, from Pinball Game. It's from the Pinball Game Black Knight 2000. This came out in 1989. The, uh, the music was composed by Brian Schmidt, Dan Forden, and Steve Ritchie. Um, the first two guys, Brian and Dan, they're like regular sound designer guys for uh, video games and pinball machines. And uh, Steve Ritchie is a, uh, is a famous pinball designer. He does all kinds of cool stuff. But they got together and did all this uh, back in 1989. And, uh, you know, the Black Knight 2000 is a super awesome pinball game. I don't know if folks out there um, are into that stuff. But uh, I am, and I totally miss playing pinball all the time um, whenever we go out and like do shows somewhere and stuff usually the bars or nightclubs have pinball games and then like when we travel to different uh, different cities different countries whatever i always uh, seek out you know what are the what are the bars that have the arcade games you know what are the bars that have pinball games it seems to be it seems to be coming back now that like there's you know bars that are just pinball games so you know in every town I like to go play the pinball games, drink the beer, buy the t-shirt and stuff like that, cut the sleeves off, all that good stuff. And uh, speaking of places that we've gone to do that, um, the first time we went to play Headbangers Open Air in Germany, um, gosh, I'm not even sure, it was 2004 or five or whatever, and it was a bunch of cool bands. Uh, one of the one of the bands that we saw there, we met these uh, these guys from Japan called Gorgon. They were uh, they were super cool, and they uh, they gave us a seven inch. They gave us a seven inch uh, on uh, Street Light Records. Street Lights Records, I believe this one came out in nineteen ninety six. I don't know if these guys are still together or not, but. Uh, it's pretty groovy 7-inch, uh, and uh, it's got some fantastic hand-drawn artwork, and um, these, guys, uh, these guys were really cool. Like I said, you know, we, we saw them in, uh, in Germany at the Headbangers Open Air, It was a great festival. We just had such a good time there, and uh, this is, uh, the 7-inch came out, uh, this is Cold-Hearted Woman by Gorgon. Cold-Hearted Woman.
2: San Francisco's very own... The ch- does that say the champs or the fucking champs on it? It just says
1: the champs on it.
2: Oh, good. Yeah, that's before they changed their name to the... Fu- yeah, that really... <laughs> but no, the ch- Oh, man. that That's probably my favorite song by then. Summer
1: Nights. Nights, summer nights with S- a K.
2: With a K, yeah. Summer K-N-Y-G-H-T-S. Um, but that was at the height, the height of their powers, 1999, when they were doing well, touring a lot, selling places out. Um, popular band at the time locally and uh in the, in the whole country doesn't think.
1: have like a record um, doesn't have any information i always says uh ace acer records ace records I i'm not sure who put it's it it very not. difficult to read i, I got
2: th- that at the time it's poorly printed i don't remember whether i bought it or ju- i mean i was friends with these guys and uh, um i don't remember whether he I, bu- I must have bought it actually at the time i don't know but i listened to it a lot back then
1: you were uh, buying records
2: yeah, I was buying...
1: When's r- the last time you bought a record?
2: Um, Not that long ago, pal. Uh, well, was I mean, it? a new one, you mean, or a used one? Or?
1: Just something, you bought oh, something, geez, you I'd bought a record.
2: Like very recent, like maybe right before that record store in North Beach with all the stuff in the basement. Oh, the 101 music? Oh, yeah, uh, I music? bought a ton of stuff there before you they get? closed. Oh, okay, like really awful. Like, like uh, Well, I got, okay, I got a couple soundtracks. Pal Joey. We were talking about oh that. Oh yeah, yeah, Weekend. yeah. Um, <laughs> what do I do for it We. Uh, um, I'm not gonna try to sing it. Uh, uh, a bunch of comedy, really bad, like Alan Sherman comedy records. <laughs> you know who Alan Sherman is?
1: <laughs> no, but is that that's gonna be guy? your uh, source material for the next tour.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, you know who Alan Sherman is? No. He's one of those Jewish comedians from the '60s who did. He had one. Well, he sang. You know, but he, he did wasn't talking. He was a he was a, 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 a musical comedian. He's the guy who had that horrible hit, that "Hello mother, Hello Fada." Oh, really? Here I am in Camp Granada. Yeah, you know, that guy. Yeah, uh, terrible, but I mean, hilarious, stupid. You know, he he uh, would do a bunch of songs uh, on a record, like where he'd take melodies from other stuff and he'd sing. What was it? Uh, you know, "Don't Buy the Liver Worst." Don't buy the liver wor-. Like <laughs> really awful. You know, about like a Jewish deli. Uh, really stupid, but but entertaining to put on. You know, when you have girls over and you really want to get romantic. Put on the Alan Sherman and Alan bust, Sherman out, bust out some cold duck, you know. Um but uh the that's champs a, that's a I, hot date for you? Oh yeah, yeah, Alan Sherman and some cold duck, yeah. But I talked to Josh uh, from the champs <laughs> about that record. I, I didn't I found it in my collection of seven inches and I had not thought of its existence for at least ten years. I didn't even think oh yeah, there's that champs record. And I found it Survived like, the Fire. I love this record. Yeah, yeah. And I and I was like and I forgot what it sounded like. And uh, there's another band, the B-side of that is a band called the Tight Bros from that same Bros. time period who ah. were sort of an indie-ish, whatever you want to call it, band. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Champs who were in the indie scene but had that metal sound, you know, and, I, and usually don't have vocals. And so I put it on, forgetting what it sounded like. I'm like, oh, this is my favorite Champs song. I forgot Tim Sody, the drummer, is singing on that. Cool. And so cool. I, ca- I just happened to talk to Josh on the phone today, and I said, you know, I'm going to play Summer Nights on my podcast. And he said, you have a podcast? What are you... And yeah. Uh, why
1: don't we have him do some phone-in? Um, oh, well, we would selections I,
2: uh, if he would dare to to do it. You yeah. know, dare him. Well, I might dare him. Yeah, yeah. 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 He's not a very uh, these days. He's not very out there in the world guy. But it, but That's it alright. might be fun. If it he might be fun. Wants to, to pick that, a few yeah.
1: tunes and call in and yeah. Talk. No, no, I'd love to do that. Yeah. Actually,
2: what I'd rather have him just play guitar li- uh, live through that because he's been playing a lot of. Uh, he's been getting into all this, you know that. um, um, uh, live stream well th- he's been w- he's been getting getting interested in all the little shredder guys who have on instagram or their youtube pages because oh. he's he's he, every few years he gets into like shred you know tony mcalpine and <laughs> but what's who's the no, guy that's
1: cool there's a lot of that out there. Uh,
2: the guy that he really likes is the guy justin was just engineering in portland um really famous guitar player paul gilbert Oh, yeah, yeah, Josh yeah. Josh Smith and The Champs became obsessed with Paul Gilbert and started copying his stuff. And The guy from
1: Extreme, right?
2: I don't remember. I think he was Paul in the band Extreme. I don't Extreme. Know about Paul Gilbert besides More what than Josh me. With the hair? Maybe. I, I, well, he probably has hair. And so he'll sit there and play perfect Paul Gilbert, which is very impressive. You know, Josh will sit there and record himself for uh, a month and a half and come up with perfectly done Paul Gilbert melodies. <laughs> and he got obsessed. What's the other guy's name? The guy, the really, really talented kid who played with David Lee Roth, I guess who's in Marin, who became paralyzed or something. But it before that, he was the ultimate prodigy. I don't remember. You don't know, He wears a pink tuxedo now and sits in a yeah. wheelchair. What yeah. the hell is his name? Real character, I'll tell you. But he has the horrible a- ALS or something. What is his name? See, I forget these guys' names. Because I don't like shredding very much. I'm not interested in it. I mean, I appreciate it, but I'm not... Says
1: Mike Scalzi from Sloughfig.
2: Well, Well, sh- when I say <laughs> shredding, <laughs> I, like, I like wanking. You know, there's a difference. I like, you know, I like uh, crazy... You know, wank guitar solo all over the place, but I don't like um, I like excessive guitar soloing, but I don't like the shredding that much. Meaning technical shredding. Yeah, like like s- s- fan picking and, and those you know, windmill stunts or bl- 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 Yeah, windmills with ibanezes with Ka- bl- bl- uh, Floyd bl- 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 Rose
1: oh, se- seven string guitars. That kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm not yeah,
2: buckethead. Yeah. I'm not really interested. You know, it's fine. It's great for what it is. You know,
1: it's fun to listen to. Like what for a little guy's while. guy's name
2: though. That guy. He was a young guy in the late '80s, super talented, who played that style. Not Paul Gilbert, but one of those guys. Uh, um, but you see, he's paralyzed now. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's ALS. You know. And he
1: wears a pink tuxedo.
2: Well, he does now. Yeah, he's he's a weird guy. I don't know, man. You know, he's in. You know, I'm sure he's out there in the media a little bit, like uh, the guitar god media. I'll, I'll come. His name will come to me. Everyone, there's people who are listening to this. Will be like, oh, that guy. They know exactly. Jason Becker.
1: Jason. Oh, yeah. there you go. Bam. Well, I
2: don't know Jason Becker, but. Um, Josh and I have talked about. Well, he—he's we're both uh, uh, the guy uh, um, that we go to up in up in San Rafael to get our amps and guitars fixed and stuff like that. Uh, Chris, you know Chris. Chris Barnett. Yeah, today's the day. I can't remember anybody's name, even someone I know It's because it's the well. day after
1: the Apollo moon landing, Maybe and so. it's the comet Neowise flying above we're all getting our periods
2: us. because the, the, the moon is pulling our uh, intestinal yeah. muscles towards the, comet. the tide the comet or something or whatever. The comet is stretching it's everything ar- around. Yeah, that's right. So we're all having period pains. And exactly. Is yeah, that right. so exactly. yeah, right. so exactly. why you're smoking so much it's weed? affecting, affecting your synapses. No. Uh, like Queen Victoria, like Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Bruce, Bruce <laughs> 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 Never mind. Oh, man. On a roll. Never mind. Okay. But, which brings up another thing. But we won't get into that. Um, but uh, Paul Gilbert, no, uh, Jason Becker, Jason Becker, um, Chris Barnett, who works on everybody's equipment. He's like the best guy, the best luthier, the best amp guy, the nicest guy in the world. Uh, have you ever t- like, taken your stuff to him or?
1: No, I go to SF Guitar Works. Oh,
2: okay. But you know Chris Barnett, or you know, who he is, you know who yeah. You and know. then for my he used to live right down the street across from. Brainwash. That's oh. why. Oh, he was he was in bra- playing pinball. He was a brainwash uh. Uh, regular. I used to work at a, a laundromat, a, a place called Brainwash, and uh, so that's where I met him. And then I realized his shop is right down the street, across the street from Black Market Music, that you never were here for. Oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. no, I. I you were. W- I went to Black or I Market got Music.
2: My, my JMP. Yeah. Anyway, so Chris Barnett was down there, lived across the street, so it's perfect. He would just fix everything. Incredibly talented at this. Now he's up in San Rafael, and he. Does all everyone's equipment from you know, Green Day to Metallica to everyone, right mm-hmm. to whoever? Sammy Hagar and uh, Jason Becker. He's always working on something for Jason Becker, even though Jason Becker's um, uh, it's not player. able to play anymore because he's got ALS or whatever it is. But he told us that he that he he will go. He has gone to his house because he's still interested in something that Chris can do or fix or I don't know what you know, and. Um, if anybody comes over to visit him, he wears a, he puts on a pink, or he has someone put him on him, in his like wheelchair. He's basically like Stephen Hawking at this point. Wow, uh, uh, a pink tuxedo, because he's still got a sense of humor. So you walk into his house and he has a pink tuxedo on in a wheelchair, and he probably <laughs> and knows
1: some people are coming over. I well no
2: yeah because he he's got a sense of humor about yeah. it. I guess. that's and cool. Kind of like Stephen Hawking did. He he has an image that he wants to you know, and he has some sort of system that he can, um. Communicate, communicate with like Stephen Hawking. That is, that like Stephen Hawking's, it is tailored to, it is uh, 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 um, custom made for him and his, the way his face or whatever he uses to indicate uh, communication. And his dad's some kind of incredible genius engineer guy, so he created this thing so that so that he can actually communicate with the world. Anyway, that's all I know about Jason Becker. I'm not a shredder, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like some of that stuff. I'm a wanker, but not a shredder. Anyway. All I right, like Brian so May and Tony Iommi. Sorry. that
1: clarifies that. Well, yeah. uh, now we're gonna take a little turn. We're gonna um, go into uh, Q and A segment.
2: Oh, I didn't know. Wait, here. when do we have Q and A?
1: We have uh, somebody named Dan Rhodes. He's a longtime listener, first time caller. He says, uh, "Dear Slough uh question for Mike." How Imagine did you that. get? Yep. How did you get involved with writing a short story for the DMR <laughs> Books Swords of Steel oh Two compilation? And had you written any prose fiction before
3: that?
2: Well, how I got involved in that is by being a complete arrogant asshole. Uh, me uh, being that, um, or that's not how I got involved in it, but that's how it. Insert
3: ended up,
1: you know. normal Adrian comment here.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> good. Good. Yeah. Good. good. I'm, glad, I'm glad that we're that we're on. The, yeah. That we know what. Yeah. <laughs> um so yeah um i mean okay the word the right word isn't arrogant maybe it's uh um uh, uh jaded or something i don't know but uh d- i had written prose from the time i was well everyone wrote stories when they were little kids right yeah but i wrote some that were really um uh, involved shall we say um but by the time i was a teen like a late teenager i was actually interested in writing so I wrote, this is around the time when I started getting involved with like fanzine stuff. Now, I, w- I know it's that you're like, insert Adrian, you were interested in fanzines. Hey. <laughs> <Well laughs> no, sure, I was. I would not, don't seem like I would be interested in that. And I wasn't particularly interested in like, you know, punk or skating zines. I've mentioned stuff, to people that I knew who did that before. But it was Alan Horrocks, who you know, ah. and some of you out there know from Aquarius Records, and now who works for uh, Pandora, th- who was active in the underground metal Bay Area Legends. Yeah. Um, but he grew up with me in Pennsylvania. His dad was also a Penn State professor. That's where we uh, so when I when Alan and I were both getting interested in mostly him, but we had hung out and been silly about you know, um, we made up several things before and had played like Traveler and DD. Ah. And so he, he was he, when we were in high school, he was writing for a high school underground newspaper, it was actually paid for by the high school but it had this weird weird things and pictures in it and he would ask me to contribute things to it it's called the altered state or something and it, it was, was actually it was printed right it was a high school uh project that existed before he got involved in it you have right? any copies of this Mm, he probably does. But He's so rash. so this is the first fanzine thing, but it was actually it. a high school sanctioned thing, so to speak. Sanctioned is not the right word. Anyway, but he said here, I d- so he would put my weird, insane, pen and ink comic bookie drawings in it and put weird poems, horror poems, I would write about tentacled, uh, horror, uh, horrific, revel of crafting creatures in this thing. And he and, you knows people read it, and it was kind of funny. And so he started doing his own zine after high school called The Alien Mating Season. And that actually got a bizarre... Uh, uh, following it d- uh, bizarre in the sense that a lot of people paid attention to it because there was nothing really like it there were there were a lot of punk music zines back then yep. and underground heavy metal and rock and roll zines tons there of were stuff. uh political anarchist and socialist and communist uh, and whatever yeah what have you zines the printed word there was a lot of that stuff that kids did and the teenagers did but there was never a just a humor zine I, that i've seen that is purely like like monty python's flying circus of zines you know huh. i'd never seen I mean there probably was somewhere i mean g- g- there had to be there was so much stuff floating around back then but uh he did alien mating season and it, it, it consisted of strange uh, draw i illustrated most of it myself i did a bunch of the covers and a bunch of the uh illustrations and then uh it was very very weird it was actually four or five people who were pretty educated and pretty quirky uh, together doing this and i was one of them and uh he did a fantastic job he printed it up it looked very professional because hmm. it's alan you know the way he would do something but it was also incredibly creative and funny and there would be things in there like entire like uh half of the magazine would be like a choose your own adventure story uh you remember those totally I love that yeah, so there was like one involving me like it was called something like uh um s-k-l-z like my name but spelled differently and like you 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 had to meet me somewhere and uh do something weird and kill things and i don't know what but uh (laughs) but um there was things like that in there like little weird role-playing things but also really weird admixtures of like anatomical uh poetic humor like think poems about spleens things like that really weird Silly stuff, right? But when he sent it out to anatomical all
1: this anatomical poetic humor,
2: yeah, yeah, literally. Okay, There was alright, he had yeah. an obsession with spleen, so he would put kind of like William S. Burroughs used to do with these collages of random words from the mm-hmm. newspaper. Yeah, he wrote several books like The Nova Express, or The Ticket that Exploded, consisting of that, which are unreadable nonsense, right? But Alan would find everything he could find, everything that he could find in print about spleens. And put them all together, and it would be like an ad lib that was really funny. Huh. It was just kind of a beatnik, weird, kind of stupid thing, you know, but but it was cool. So we, we had a bunch of these, and there was some really silly, weird stuff in there that looked almost like, you know, Money Python's Flying Circus would put, uh, I mean, talk about nerds, like not Money Python, you know, would put um, different graphics together. Right. You try yeah. to make sort of like little landscapes of those in the pages. And uh, he did it pretty inexpensively, printed a Bunch of them up. It got around town, really. Well, but he also, uh, in fact, he's sort of the guy that Alan, after doing this with zines, sort of told me eventually, this is what you need to do with your music. You need to get it out to different countries and different it to it to people. stuff. Yeah. And that really was what... In a way, what instigated Slaufeg becoming uh, having some c- success, being distributed in Europe, it was ah, key
3: through fixture.
2: Alan saying, "This is the way you have to do this. You can't just sit here and play shows." You know. So anyway, this is hey man, if
1: I play my music and it's good enough, everyone's gonna. Well, love that was my man.
2: stupid attitude until yeah, a lot of he had a big influence on that, saying well, you got to do this, you got to send it out to these. Places. Alan had a big influence on your stupid attitude. Uh, on the on my changing it to a more practical. Oh, I was going to say this doesn't sound like him. underground heavy metal, you know. So. Um, we had this zine, and so he would distribute it, and people would. Uh, he got some international. Uh, I mean, you know, what did you know the zine? But it got all over the place. Yeah, and yeah. He got a lot of mail about it because it was really good. people. I, plenty of people wrote saying, "I've never seen a zine quite like this." And he started getting these, these uh, some fr- from people in jail who did zines. Whoa. There was jail people in jail who would send things around and, and do. Letters and zines and a lot of them are politically motivated. So there's this one guy named Peter Primal who would always write to us who was in jail. Peter Primal, Uh, who was really a real weirdo, sort of a real libertarian or something. And um, so around that time, I was writing fiction. And I wrote a story called a rhetorical apocalypse, which really means like a literary disaster. about some guy who drives himself insane by reading too much philosophy and that kind, of, like a like a doom crazy love. Wow, traffic.
1: precursor of things to come.
2: Yes, exactly. So so I exactly so I wrote it uh, about a college professor who drives himself uh, crazy, kind of like the story that this guy's referring to uh, in the in the uh, the uh, 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 Swords of Steel thing, right? Oh okay. Okay. So I wrote this rhetorical apocalypse when I was 19, and Alan. Um, printed it up i mean i i you know we talked about it and he said I, I can print this up the way i do the zine and send it to all the same sources so he did so he printed it up in his you was know, like like 25 page story or something and his little cover for it with a silly picture on it and sent it to those same channels people were doing this back then i didn't yeah. know about it and he did this for me it was great I, mean, I paid for a little for the printing you know and i got orders from all over the place people from jail people from blah 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 and they would send back critiques of it and everything and i started to understand how Underground stuff works, you know what I mean. Wow! And so I did several things like that, where I had fiction that was, you know, which is not much different than this uh, BMR thing that he's that that that. that uh, what's this guy's name again? Um, Joe um, Biff Frank. No, uh, our
1: good friend Dan Rhodes.
2: Dan Rhodes. So so Dan, um, I had some experience with writing fiction in an underground way, just like in underground music, uh, when I was younger. And. So,
1: so, yes, I you had written prospection yeah, so before. So when it
2: came to this, I said from being an arrogant asshole, what I meant was <laughs> the guy who put that out, Dave Ritson, I think it was Ritson. I Ritson, don't know. Yeah, he, he uh, approached me in Chicago um, a while back, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I don't know, maybe 7 years ago, I don't know what it was, um, saying he was going to – now, uh, the reason I, I say it not because I was being arrogant, but jaded or or, or – sort of I I had been approached by so many people about projects that never happened. Me, me, people said yeah. to me for years over the course of Slough Fag, hey, I'm going to do a compilation about uh, from bands doing songs. You know, write a song about your favorite sci-fi um, movie and record it and da-da-da, and you know, not paying for it at all. Uh, we ended up paying for it, and that was, of course, Death Machine, so something ah, great out, yeah, but yeah. the compilation never came out, so we put it on Down Among the Dead Men. Several times this has happened to me where people approach me with projects or, uh, that have to do with heavy metal that never really come to fruition. So he said, well, we're going to take these sci- uh, sci-fi and 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 uh, fantasy and w- horror stories and put them together and make this great book. And stupidly, I was like, eh, I'll believe it when I see it. And So I, uh, my attitude was kind of like, well, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time writing some story unless uh, I have some proof that this is really well, going to happen. Something's going to happen, I didn't yeah. say that to him. Of course, I said, yeah, good idea. Get a hold of me. And so I didn't do anything about it, you know, like a jerk. And and he put it out. But he was a really cool guy, and he sent me the book. And he said, I'd really like you to be in the second edition of this. And I was like, well, yeah, okay, now you're actually doing it. Great. I should I should really do this. And so what happened then was was hilarious because uh, I didn't have anything to give him, really. Because I don't write, you know, I've written quite a bit of uh, sh- you know, science fiction stories, short science fiction stories, for a few of them, you know. Um, one I sent to Asimov Science Fiction and some other magazines back in the 90s and mm. of course they got rejected immediately um, but uh, like, like I'm sure 99.9% of them do but this one I was excited about because it, it, it actually almost happened to me the, uh, I was teaching a philosophy of religion course and there was a super bright kid in there, who I think knew more about philosophy of religion than I did, uh, which wouldn't be that surprising because it's not my area of expertise. But I was but now when
1: you're a teacher, I you're was asked like,
2: I was asked to teach the class, and I learned by teaching it. After a few times, I taught it for several years. But this kid was really into it. Like I mean, he had like Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica. Like he owned copies of these. Wow. giant... Giant volumes that are like 10 times as long as the Bible and stuff. These tomes he would bring into class. And he knew he had all these encyclicals and stuff from the the history of Catholicism. Really brilliant kid. And um, he listened to what I said about uh, St. Anselm's ontological argument, which is this absurd sort of Neoplatonist proof that God exists. You know, the greatest thing that... uh, that w- than which there can be no greater, uh, you know, the being than which there can be no greater. And there's this little sort of l- piece of uh, logical argumentation that's tri- trying to prove to you that being an atheist is impossible because it is a reductio ad absurdum. It is a sort of, he kind of has this... Squasi- reductio ad absurdum. Yeah, Put that you into your pipe d- and smoke deductive it. deductive argument, which ends up in a contradiction. So if you can show that someone who doesn't believe in God... Doesn't believe in a being than which there can be no greater, the, the ultimate perfect being, right? It reduces to a contradiction. You can't not believe in it, and and uh, I thought that was really funny because it's a really a stupid argument, but it, but it is hard at first glance. It's certainly hard to tell, and it has been for many 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 years because it was written in uh, the uh, the uh, 1100s. Uh, what exactly is wrong with it? Because it seems to be somehow uh, a, a valid argument. But it's not really sound. It doesn't really have premises that you can believe. So uh, this kid turned it around on me. And he said, well, wait. And he, he rearranged the premises. And, and he said, look, but you can prove that not that the being than which there can be no greater must exist. You can prove by this, if you just rearrange these premises a little bit, that the being than, than which there can be no more horrible or terrible or evil. He basically proved that Satan exists by the same argument. It's such a dumb argument. Mm. Or that the most horrible being ever which brings up a lovecraftian uh flavor to me so i took his what he said and then i looked it up and someone else had thought of it of course it was called the devil corollary to the ontological the argument devil's of corollary and so i was like oh this is incredible so i wrote it the story as if there's a professor who's who's uh, um really pontificating this ontological argument who really believes he was like a like a a Christian professor who's teaching philosophy of religion saying, look, this proves that God exists beyond all beyond all shadow of a doubt. And one of his students turns around and says, wait, I can prove that the most horrible being ever exists. And it, the, the teacher thinks about it, and it's the same exact logic with just different wording, just different, you know, just sort of the antithesis yeah. of that. And it drives him insane because it proves to him that it's even more convincing that, that the greatest being exists, that the most horrible being must exist as well. And he can't stop thinking about it, you know, and drives him insane drives him insane, and then so he has to
1: get shock treatment, and he winds up in Safeway
2: no actually, he winds up having a talk show where George Harrison comes on yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, <laughs> and then he goes to Safeway and buys cereal and gets told that he's uh, <laughs> acting strange um, but but <laughs>
1: All right, so so to answer so his question, uh, no, So then yes. I did it,
2: and he published it, and I think it turned out great, and I'm really happy the guy kept bugging me about it because I, you know.
1: You know, that was a cool thing, but the only bum thing is that that book is such a small format. No, that, that's it's the difficult first to read.
2: No, but he, no, the great thing is he, he did it in really small, you're right, he did it in really small print, but then that's the second edition, uh-huh. right? The first edition is a little different. He put out both in one big Edition, it's like oh. a big thick book and has beautiful print. It's a beautiful book. He, oh he, so, we really put really? it out and spent the money and, and had sort of the highlights of each one. I think. Oh,
3: that's cool! I haven't and seen that it's one. It's
2: like really nice. And I'll you have a copy of you. this, yeah, 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 it's really okay, great. Cool. Yeah,
3: all
1: right.
2: So, it's actually a really nice piece of uh, really, so nice yeah. So, Dan, page. to
1: answer your question, yes, yeah, um, yeah, it's <laughs> the long, the, the short <laughs>
2: answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> so,
1: uh, part B to his uh, question. Oh, there's part B too, yeah. Oh, my god. Uh, he says uh, Slaufig has been around for thirty years.
2: No, actually, that's not true. But how do uh, you
1: guys deal with the creative challenges facing metal bands that have been around that long?
2: We don't. We Staying just put out fresh while yeah.
1: keeping it true. Do you think about what <gasps> paths other longtime metal bands have taken?
2: I, mean, I, why ea- I. Well, you know some something about this. I mean, what? Um.
1: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I just I. I think we don't. We yeah. put out really boring. albums. <laughs> You know, we write songs, we make records. You know, we're, we, the, we put the songs on the records that we like at the time. And if five years down the line we decide we don't like them, then that's up to us. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, that's, it's, you know we kind of go through, well, we kind of have been going through a cycle where...
2: Drummers replace.
1: Yeah, you know, drummers come and go stuff like that. keeps things fresh like a little that. bit. Yeah. But, we, uh, but, you know, we, we write songs, and we don't put out a record until we have en- uh, enough songs that we like.
2: Until we have something to say. Like, I have no desire to put a record out anytime soon because, I mean, a full length record. Because we just made one in 2019 for the first time in five years, right. and it took about two years to make it. Not, not, it didn't, I mean, it didn't take two years of work, but it took scheduling problems and blah, yeah, blah, blah. Yeah, blah. it just takes time. And creative pro- I mean, there was times I was like, well, I don't have any more. All I have is 20 minutes of music. Right. And I'm not going to force out any. Now, th- we can't say that the same for, s- I, I, uh, uh, true, truth be told. Um, we've gone through several you know with ten records, we've gone through a lot of peaks and valleys on the creative uh, in the creative uh, uh landscape, as it were, uh if you will, so to speak. um, so how do you stay fresh? Well, you don't always you can't always stay fresh, right? You just can't you you there I, I mean I must admit, and I think it's not something you should be ashamed of that there are times when you have to push the creative process. Even if you think what you're doing is not the most spectacular thing you've ever done, you have to like go, well, wait, okay, maybe not every song is going to top the last one. I mean, if you do that, you're not going to do a lot, right? So.
1: But also, when you have like, if you have half a song, you want to finish it. You're like, this is half of like a good song. I got to finish this. Yeah, and it's hard. And it pushes you. And
2: you've seen how we've gone through that since you've been in this band. You've seen a lot of that of going, well, shit, we have a very inspired verse and chorus whatever but yeah but what is he it going to something do? else and it doesn't and you can't always find something else that easily so as far as that goes we we uh having said what i just said about pushing creativity you i mean sometimes within 10 albums you might have to do that but the truth is you try not to and we and like for instance ape uprising was an inspired record uh, but it runs mostly on energy alone. There is not—it's not the most innovative record we ever. Well, uh, the, the song "Ape Uprising" and uh, "Simeon Manifesto" are pretty creative, right? But there's other straight rock songs and doom songs on there. Harry had just come into the band. We had a new—he really gave it, gave us a new burst of energy, a the spark energy, of energy. Yeah. Harry really did, literally as a drummer, but also just as, as the, the the camaraderie of the band. Really, we, that was like. A really good period, right? That began with that album, and we got very excited. It was sort of a we had done Hard Worlder, which is good, but it was sort of more of an end of an era album, end of the Greg era album, even though you know because we wrote some of those songs with Greg and right. Hard Worlder, and then sort of we had Ruben, he was good, but it but it kind of just sort of is like the end of the the end of the beginning, so to speak. And then when Harry joined a couple years later, it like a new chapter started. We were doing more rock stuff, and and so uh, ape uprising, most of ape uprising was pretty inspired. There are a few on there that are kind of, eh, but but it was a pretty inspired record. But then, a couple years later, or a year later, or whatever it was, we did animal spirits, which was some somewhat inspired, but it was also perspiration, not just inspiration. You know?
1: Yeah, that was an amount of perspiration and on that one.
2: Uh, the production, not that that was it was our we, it, we I produced the record, so it's not the engineer's fault or anything. But I uh, it, w- it became out a little too. Um, Steady and controlled, and, and sort of bland production, and uh, because we wanted to strip down the production and use it sort of a, a more uh, uh, rock sound, and we made a rock album, you know. But it's not our best album; it's not the worst. And then with Digital Resistance, we r- I don't know what happened with that record in the sense that it's certainly not the most inspired slough egg album by any. It's it's r- I'm not that crazy about that record. So uh, at the time we were making it. We were inspired, especially the, remember the first song, the uh, Analog Avengers ding and all that? Ding yeah, ding I mean, ding that, that ding was like the beginning, we thought ding ding it was the beginning of a new era. I mean, you were playing, uh, I was not playing guitar on it at all. Remember, we were practicing with just you, me, and Harry, and then yeah. Angelo would be here, and I'd be on the keyboard, over, I'd be on the, the organ, singing and playing the organ. I thought, wow, this is a new thing. This is like doom, soul, like, you know, Doom, soul,
1: of, I remember that you term. You said
2: that, yeah. Yeah. And, and we are pl- playing an organ. We really, you know, f- I felt like we were opening up a whole new vista there. But honestly, when it was recorded, see, sometimes you can be, in it's its harsh, but it's true that sometimes it just fools, you. you feel like you're inspired writing it, you feel like you're inspired rehearsing it, but then when it actually comes out, sometimes then inspiration isn't there as much as you thought it was. And that's a very hard thing to track and to try to improve on, right? So with, with the last album, with last year, with uh, um, the one that came out last year, uh, New Organon, I really was sort of shooting in the dark going, well... There's, we got to do something to make this more to do exactly what you, what he asked to make uh, with, what uh keeping it true. No, we had to keep things true, but also keep them fresh. How do you keep things fresh? Well, we're with a different drummer, two different drummers on that yeah, record, two right? That's one thing. Addison was certainly fresh, if if nothing else. And we spent a lot of time writing that Remember, we we threw out a lot of songs. We only kept the ones we were like, oh, that sounds too much like Animal Spirits. Oh, that sounds too much like Digital. Well, we distance. took it our time. We took our time and really got the ones that we were inspired by. Yeah. I mean, your song, and uh, canny was really inspirational because it was something we hadn't done in a long time. You mm-hmm. wrote it all yourself. We all arranged it together, but you—I think you wrote all the riffs.
1: Yeah, we took um, um we d- we took like two years to get that from start to finish.
2: Yeah. I and Angelo, uh, wrote. I mean, for instance, Angelo's song, um. That I wrote the lyric. Of course, I was always writing. Oh the lyric, yeah,
3: yeah. Um, uh, I
1: actually found one of the demos on equality. For
2: that. Yeah. Remember that we were not really inspired by that song until we got in the studio. I mean, we liked it, but we weren't like, "This is going to be the best song." But then, once we got in the studio and we we played it. We played it really raw. I remember that. And I once I wrote oh the melody I for it <laughs> and I started singing, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be a really good song.
1: I found a demo um, for that today when I was sifting through things to play yeah. on the radio show. And uh, the the demo for that song sounds cool, yeah. man. It's, like, it's got like a super raw Well, because we did all sorts of
2: weird it. guitar uh, bendy. I remember we were thinking Joe Walsh all the time we were p- writing that <laughs> song. We were like playing those sort of bends that start bend, and then you get down, you know. And, um, well, the point is about the fresh thing, though, is that, First of all, at that moment, I was a little bit w- scared to go to another engineer, not Justin Weiss, because right. he's a wizard; he's incredible. But we've been with him so long that we thought we need to get into a new environment. We need to get into a new studio and get out of the comfort zone. We get out of the comfort zone, we'll be a little more tense. And God knows, I don't need to be any more tense in the studio. But it, at Trackworks, you see, at Justin Weiss's studio, I think for the last couple albums, the last maybe three albums we did there. Maybe the problem was I wasn't tense enough. I would lie on that couch, and I wasn't stressed out in the studio the way I used to be. I wasn't worried about money. was I wasn't Too worried. comfortable, yeah. I laid there on that couch and looked at that horrible poster he has with all the rock stars. Oh, and yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. And I just laid back because he's so good and he knew us so well. He's just like, oh, yeah, okay, just do this now. Okay, now I'm going to mix this. Just sit back and, you know, and we didn't have as active of a, a part in it. So how we stayed fresh on New Organon, and I think it comes through, and a lot of people agree with me, maybe some don't, but... A lot of people agree that, that album sounds fresh, and it's a return to form, and it's a brand new, uh, slough it's really a new Slough Fag album. It sounds like Slough Fag, classic Slough Fag, but it's also, it really punches in a way the last two albums before it did not it's punch. got good stuff, yeah. And some of that's the songwriting, but a lot of it's also the production and the live feeling to it. And that's exactly, so I said, I want to go to my friend Phil, uh, who I've never recorded with before. And I was, I was nervous when we were going in there going, oh my God, what if he's my friend, but I don't know. And I know he's a good. I know he's a good engineer. But what if it doesn't? work? But you've work never sometime? actually
1: recorded with yeah, him Yeah. What if it doesn't yeah.
2: work? What if it doesn't sound right? What if like <coughs> we don't agree on things? What if you know? And um, luckily, it turned out absolutely fantastic, and he did f- famously well on it. You know. Um, but I think, I think a lot of that was our approach going in was uh, forcing ourselves to be fresh. First of all, taking a lot of time for the songwriting and chucking out all sorts of stuff that wasn't absolutely energetic, right? And then I remember, uh, but not... uh, Writing the songs for New Organon, I was still sort of... I had trepidation. I was like, oh, is this going to sound like the last album? Is this not going to sound heavy? And when we went in, what really helped, and we've talked about this, is that we didn't do a lot of editing. With Justin Weiss, we did tons of editing. We did all these... I want to say splicing but you don't do splicing things, and visual fixing noodling, things moving quantizing things mixing things. Uh, doing so much more mixing but Phil is way more of a live style engineer he was in a he's toured more than than I have than any of us has he's toured a lot with uh, uh, Trans-Am and a couple other bands but mostly Trans-Am and actually he was in the Champs after after a certain point ah. there was a, there's a the last incarnation of the Champs he took Josh's position as a guitar player but anyway Phil uh, uh, is so good at live sound and getting sounds that's his skill whereas weiss is more of a mastering guy more of an engineer you know i mean more of a mixing guy uh phil has all that equipment that incredible vintage equipment and so he concentrated on getting the live. and i told him that. i said i want this to sound live again i want this to come alive i don't want it to sound too perfect or too um uh, steady and level and, and and uniform and he knew exactly what i was saying and he he set the amps up and everything in such a way that we you know, uh, that we got a really raw sound, and the way he did the drum sound, the way he did everything, he got the right sound going in, so he hardly had to do any mixing. That's the whole point of recording, of the key were you man. You were there for a little bit of the mix? No, not really. Were you?
1: I went there for a few days. Like when
2: you sang on Canny, maybe there was some mixing too, yeah.
1: I, I went there for a few days off and on. Yeah. I, I didn't hang out the whole yeah, time. Yeah, because um, was
2: there for some of the mixing, but not, usually it's just me and the engineer, right? Yeah. And I couldn't believe, and, and when Angelo came in to do his final guitar solo thing, we were mixing as well, he could not believe how little, m- that album is virtually unmixed. Phil sat there for like a couple hours on each song, and just went, did it, did it, okay, I got it. It's and all about how balance. How did you do this so fast? Because it's all about balance at that yeah. point. Yeah, I said, how did you, you mix this in like no time, and it sounds fantastic, and he said, because going in, yeah. I knew what I wanted, and it did, He the setup was a little longer, and, the thi- and, and all that stuff, and... It's worth it. Um... He just got it figured out before the mix. And then and coming out of it, I said, did we do any edits? Didn't you have to fix anything? He goes, we don't need to do any edits. I don't think so. Do you hear anything? I said, not really. There's a few mistakes here. And yeah, there's some unsteady stuff. But it added to the live feeling of the record, which Indeed. is exactly what I wanted. So when we got finished, I said, yeah, it doesn't need anything else. And he goes, I didn't think it would. And I, so basically, it's a much more live record. Staying fresh has to do, as far as records go, it has to do with everything from the songwriting to the, but the environment in the studio Means everything. It's so important that that environment in the studio. If you take too much time thinking about the little, uh, you know, innocuous or unimportant details, I keep using that word today, innocuous. Uh, that um, you know, the, the things that matter are the feeling you get in that room. I mean, depending on what kind of band you are, you know, the live feeling in that room, uh, the vibe going on, and how you feel when you're doing it. For at least for this record, really came through.
1: And if you're if you're recording. And then you go and you listen to the playback, and you're like, "Man, that sounds good." Well, it's it's better to have that rather than saying, you know, okay, there's a couple things, but I'll fix it in the mix. Yeah,
2: well, that oh no, that for sure. You know what I mean? But often the problem that screws with me is that is that uh, I always think things sound incredible in the studio because you're listening to them through these amazing speakers, really loud, and so every record you make is like, "Oh, this sounds great in the studio," and then you get home and play it on your your car or in your boombox or in your. Stereo, and you're like, eh, it's missing something. But with uh, New Organon, I took it home and was like, whoa.
1: Yeah, because everything's good going it's in. It's all just
2: live, 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 live. As far as staying fresh on stage and stuff, we don't need to, to worry about that. We're so fresh that, you know, we have, we're just fresh. It's all fresh. those fresh
1: threads from we're Ross. Just,
2: we're just fresh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah. Or or uh, mm. uh, that, that famous um, thrift store in Council Bluffs, Nebraska, where I always like to go right. and buy all my bejeweled Neil Diamond shirts. Yeah.
1: Speaking of keeping it fresh. Uh, Is there another question? No. No, I'm just uh, saying: speaking of keeping it fresh, you know who keeps right. it fresh? It's Raven.
2: Oh, yeah. Raven keeps it play fresh. Ra- they are about the freshest band I've ever seen. That's the best live. I think that's the le- best Ravens live band, band I've ever yeah. seen in my life. I'm serious.
1: I love playing with Raven. They are
2: so good live. And they're and better than almost anyone I've ever seen live.
1: And dude was so cool when oh, uh, we played with them. Oh, the coolest guys on the planet. They let's uh, use their uh, equipment. Just yeah, like, ah, exactly. <laughs> they let's use their. I was just. And then when they're say. done, they
2: just throw their guitars down. Yeah, there's a band who knows what they're doing. The that uh, um, not get- John, but his brother Gallagher brothers. Uh, Dave get what his brother's name? I don't remember. The guitar player. He he uses. Uh, shitty, um, uh, it's like Squire Bullet uh, Telecasters, or like old, you know, like cheapo Telecasters. So he can just chuck it on the ground when he's done. Like he literally just threw it, put his put his guitar down, face down on the on the stage at the. Uh, at the, park, at the side park side, after we were done yeah, and just walked off eh, whatever it was awesome and you know it gets the greatest sound in the world they're the most professional band and I, I mean like that not in a cheesy way professional they're I liked how after
1: band. sound check they just left all their stuff there and took off yeah they don't
2: give a shit yeah. yeah
1: it was great and dude let me use his bass amp and everything and when it was time for our set he came and found me and said, hey, let me yeah. show you a few no, things yeah, about yeah, my amps yeah, yeah, yeah. so that and you that know what's like going on. And that was like
2: the third on. time we'd play with them, right? Yeah, and, and no, he was like, time. oh, do you
1: want know. me to move this? And I was like, dude, you're from Raven, no, man. they like, are move the most
2: professional band. Yeah. I don't mean they're the, the most industry band, not at all. They're the most experienced, uh, uh, pro, like know what they're doing, know how to treat people, know what doesn't matter, and know what does matter band.
1: And they know how to keep it fresh. This is wiped this out. This
2: I'm an American. I have <laughs> rights, and you can't tell me what to wear. Like, you can't tell me to wear a mask. The government doesn't have the right to tell me to wear a mask. I mean, does that make any sense? Because uh, I, saw, I saw a bunch of stuff. Oh, on there's a the lot of that Interview these yeah. people at like rodeos or something, or, or there's a certain Walmart. So to, or maybe there too. But yeah. it was in somewhere. I don't know. And the guy was like, they interviewed a guy without a mask. And, he, and he's right next to a bunch of people he doesn't know. And he goes, I'm an American, and it's my constitutional right not to wear a mask or not to be told. Uh, They interviewed him, saying, I'm not to be told what to wear. And then they interviewed this woman in the same room. She goes, yeah, the government can't tell me what to wear or what not to wear. I'm like, wait, have you ever heard of underwear? Have you ever been to a beach or a swimming pool? Like, there's a law called indecent exposure. The government has been telling you that you have to wear certain things. Yeah, you have to wear pants. Like, no shirt, no shoes, no service. Have you ever heard about this before? Like, what do you mean the government can't tell you what to wear? They've been telling people what to wear forever. What do you, like, (laughs) what? It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, if you were in a nudist colony, I could see you wa- or if you were walking around the street nude, at least there'd be some consistency to your story. You might go, yeah, "Oh, yeah. I'm th- I don't let the government tell me what to wear." But you're wearing pants. You're wearing clothes. Yeah. You wear a bra, you wear uh, underwear, you wear a swimming suit at the at the pool. Uh I mean, if you do you know if you didn't, you'd get arrested and you don't protest that. So what where the constitution say the government can't tell you to wear something? Where does it say that? <laughs> Man. <laughs>
1: So we just listened to uh, some GBH because it's uh, one of my favorite bands. It's from their latest album, Momentum, released in 2017 on Hellcat Records. That was uh, Birmingham Smiles because they're a British band and Birmingham all that smiles. stuff. Uh kind of
2: dirty. Hey. Anything involving Birmingham sounds dirty.
1: Once again, this is Slough Radio, Season 1, Episode 13. Always keep your pen and paper handy if yeah. you want to take notes and document stuff, uh, especially about, you know, how Mike got into writing prose fiction and all that. Remember, um, have your
2: dog or cat spayed or neutered. All this that stuff. You can
1: also send it. us anything you want us to play on the show to uh, Lord Weird Sloughfag at P.O. Box 191301, San Francisco, California, zip code 94119. So uh, send something in if you want us to play it, and we'll uh, check it out. And speaking We've
2: of reaching for the stars... Um
1: the Comet, K- Neil-wise. K- uh, uh,
2: wait, are they, is GBH from Birmingham?
1: Uh, I think so, yeah.
2: Okay, why is it that every place named Birmingham is hell? I mean, every one of them. <laughs> England, Birmingham is hell. Um, Birmingham, Birmingham, Birmingham Alabama. Alabama is hell. Yeah. And th- unbeknownst to many, there is a Birmingham, Pennsylvania. It is a town where my mother grew up and is buried. And that place is a one-block town it's a, i mean it's a block around and that is it it's, so it's not really hell it's just small well it was hell when she grew up there it was terrible poverty and rural poverty and horrible stuff going on and all sorts of yeah so i mean every birmingham it's not hell now but anyway uh we're gonna play uh, the last song we're gonna do is uh is um from uh, a band called thunder chimp and this is from 96, is it? Yeah, 1996. And it's it's a song or it maybe On it's... On Poverty just, Records. Yeah, Poverty Records was Chewy Marzolo uh, uh, as a uh, label. Now, Chewy, this is a band that consisted of John Cobbett who, in that band, he called himself Hank Priest, though. He was the singer and guitar. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good name, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. that. was his name. Hank Priest, yeah. And then Chewy just called himself Chewy, the drummer. These guys, obviously, John was in Slough Fag, but uh, were in Hammers and Misfortune. So Thunder Chimp existed until the late 90s when we started Hammers of Misfortune as sort of this rock opera project.
1: Well, that was on Holy Cadaver, though, wasn't it? On Holy it?
2: Cadaver, yeah. And Chewy put out records on Poverty Records. That's that his label. He puts a bunch of 7 Inches out and then some compilations. That's which awesome. awesome. Yeah, and then um, this band broke up, and that's when Holy Cadaver... A.K.A. Hammers of Misfortune became a live band. It was because Thunderchimp broke up
1: that ah. we were just going
2: to be a project. But then when Chewy was going to play drums and John was writing it, and I was going right. to sing. You know. But then when this band broke up, John's like, "Well, I don't have a band now. So why don't we just take this and make it a live show and really make a band rather than just yeah, a rock?" Yeah, we just project. play The Bastard all the time. Yeah, and so we d- 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 yeah. that's what we did. Uh. All
1: right. So this is a uh, Thunderchimp seven-inch. Vinyl, it says here it's on uh, Poverty Records. Um, it's cool, I love these older 7 inches, it's like, it's got somebody's phone number on the back of it. It's got um, totally undecipherable artwork, of course, and so in parentheses it says Thunderchamp at the bottom, in case you can't read the uh, the logo. This is uh, says 1996, this came out. This is Escape Pod, Tarantula Fist, written by John Cobbett. Thanks for listening. See you next week.